0: This morning, it is a delight to say the name of Ruth Haley Barton, who is our special guest speaker this morning. Uh, We have been on a journey these last six or seven weeks with some marvelous visitors from beyond our congregation's life who have come and brought us God's word in a very fresh and helpful way. And um, we've saved the best to last. We have saved a wonderful, wonderful friend and communicator uh, to be with us this morning. As many of you uh, know, Ruth Haley Barton is the uh, co-founder and president of the Transforming Center, a ministry that is dedicated to caring for the souls of people in leadership positions, uh, serving churches and ministries, uh, working under high pressure uh, conditions in homes and businesses uh, all around this uh, Chicago land. Uh, Ruth is a spiritual director, a counselor, a leader herself, a mother, soon to be, as you'll hear, a grandmother, hard to believe, looking at her her youthful good looks, uh, but has known from the inside what it is like to carry all of these different responsibilities and yet still find a life of the Spirit in the midst of it. Uh, Ruth is uh, the author of several wonderful books. We stock them in our bookstore Uh, One on silence and solitude, another one on sacred rhythms, another one on uh, uh, care for the soul of your leadership. Uh, They have impacted a lot of us in this congregation already, and we hope she'll just keep on writing them because they have been so immensely helpful. Ruth has been in the pulpit before. She's spoken to our Life Change Conference when we had her in Dallas Willard here not too long ago. She has been a mentor to individual members of our staff and leader of staff retreats. It is my great joy to welcome this very special friend uh, back to the pulpit of Christ Church, and I hope you'll join me in extending that warm welcome. Ruth. Have fun.
1: (laughs) Well, it's wonderful to be among family and friends today. I, I spend a lot of time on the road, and it is a real gift when I get to. Just get in my car and drive over to a church that's close by and be with uh, my family and my friends. In the first service, as Dan alluded to, my daughter Bethany and her husband Ryan were here with our new grandbaby who's not yet quite fully here into the world, but very much here. And um, in this service, my parents, Charles and Joanne Haley, are with with us. Um, So I'm just really grateful. I'm grateful for my friends here at Christ Church of Oak Brook. We've been on a journey together. We were saying maybe 10 years now. We've been journeying together on all sorts of different levels, mostly hidden, uh, mostly with the staff and having some of your people come to us when we do our Transforming Center events. But... Um, I, I consider myself to have real friends here at Christ Church, and I'm thrilled to be on the journey with you. And that's how I feel, and it feels wonderful and satisfying to be with you here this morning. So let's take a moment to read our scripture, and our scripture today is taken from John 9. I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. It's a very long passage, but it's a passage we need to read because it actually, the length of the passage and the convoluted nature of the conversations in the passage become clearer as you read the whole thing. So are you ready? Do you think you can handle all 41 verses this morning? I think we can. I think we can. John 9, starting with verse 1. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes. And he said to him, "'Go, wash in the pool of Siloam,' which means sent. Then he went out and washed and came back, able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, "'Is this the man who used to sit and beg?' Some were saying, "'It is he.' Others were saying, "'No, but it is someone like him.' And he kept saying, "'I am the man.' But they kept saying, "'Then how are your eyes opened?' He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been born blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes. Then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, He is a prophet. "'The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind "'and had received his sight "'until they called the parents of the man "'who had received his sight and asked them, "'Is this your son, who you say was born blind? "'How then does he see? "'His parents answered, "'We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, "'but we do not know how it is that now he sees, "'nor do we know who opened his eyes. "'Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself.'" His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sin, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heal our sight, O God, that we may know the difference between good and evil. Open our eyes, O God, that we may see what is true and what is false. Restore to us wisdom That we may be well in our souls. Restore to us wisdom that we and our world may be well. Amen. Well, I just want you to know that I have already had a morning in which I have experienced God's grace. If you happen to see a little silver Altima out there being pulled over by a police car somewhere along the way this morning, that was me. And I was pulled over on my way, and I might as well just confess it now and get it all out there. We might as well start by being honest. And I want you to know that I uh, pleaded, I didn't plead, I I did not lose my dignity, I want you to know. (laughs) It's very important not to lose one's dignity. But I did ask the officer if he had any grace he could extend, that I was on my way to Christ Church of Oakbrook to preach, and could he extend some grace? And he said, just wait a minute, ma'am, and let me check. And I don't know if he went back. I don't know what he went back to check, but he came back, and he handed me my license, and he said, enjoy the rest of your Sunday, ma'am. And I said, yes, sir, I will. And so I am enjoying my Sunday, having already experienced the grace of God. Thanks be to God. So, here we are, and I'm glad to be with you, and our scripture today is a very challenging one. Could you tell? It's a very challenging one if you start to dig into it. It describes one of Jesus' most common miracles in the New Testament, and that is the miracle of healing a blind person. And I've come to believe that perhaps the reason that this Particular story is so oft repeated in the scriptures is because the journey from blindness to sight is actually a beautiful metaphor of the spiritual journey itself It is the journey from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight And the spiritual journey is actually the movement from seeing God nowhere or seeing God only where we least expect him to seeing God everywhere This journey of the Christian soul is the ability to see the works of God even in the midst of human experiences, human experiences that feel so stuck and so broken and so far out of reach. The spiritual journey is an increasing capacity to see God everywhere that God is so that eventually all of life becomes a place where we see God and we experience the presence of God and we respond to the activity of God deep within us and among us. Another way of talking about this is to talk about discernment. You know, that's a a kind of a scary word for some of us, but really discernment is simply the ability to recognize and respond to the presence of God within us and among us. And I'd like us to enter into this story today, not so much as a sermon in which I'm going to preach to you, but more as a reflection. When I am going to invite you into a time of meditation, I'm going to ask you to ask God to help you to see where you might be in the story. Now, I realize that's a little daunting because there's not very many good places in this story. (laughs) You know, it starts out with some very good news and then this story goes downhill from there. That's for sure. But I'm asking you perhaps to enter into our time together today with a willingness to allow God to show you where you are in this story and to allow God to deal with you where you find yourself in the story. And it's difficult because John 9 is a devastating story for those of us who have been Christians uh, for a long time or those of us who have been around religiosity for a long time. And just when you think that this story couldn't get any worse or any more incriminating or any more embarrassing to us as Christian people, it does. Because Jesus delivers this final zinger in verse 41 where he says, If you were blind, you would not have sin, but now that you say we see, your sin remains. And it makes me want to ask myself and you the question this morning as you look even back on your own week. Where was there a place where you were absolutely convinced that you were the only one in the situation who could see things right? You know, that you were the only one in the situation who saw reality as it exists, objectively speaking, of course. Uh, Where was the place where you were convinced that you were the one that was right and everybody around you was wrong? Um especially um, someone who might have been on a lower place in the spiritual totem pole than yourself, or at least you perceive them that way, because certainly the blind man in this story is the lowest man on the totem pole, spiritually speaking. And I wouldn't even ask for a show of hands this morning about this question because I'm afraid we might all embarrass ourselves. But I do want to ask you, if you will, to be quiet in your own heart and to be willing in God's presence, to see yourself in the story, to let God very gently and very kindly show you where you might be and a willingness for you to allow God to deal with you in that place, to be with you in your place in this story. The interesting thing about John 9 is that everyone around Jesus on that day had seen the same incident. They had all seen the blind man heal or they had been close to it. And all of them could not see it all for different reasons, and the only one in the story who could see was the person who was the most optically challenged. In John 9, everyone saw the same miracle, or they heard a report of the same miracle, and all of them had difficulty seeing and naming the work of God in their midst. And for all the reasons, all the reasons that everyone had for being blind, what should have been a day of unequivocal celebration in the life of this blind man and those who loved him and were in community with him, instead of being a day of celebration, it became a day of controversy and debate and fear and expulsion. And it happened at the hands of the most religious people in that community. So the story starts out with some really good news. And the good news is that Jesus saw the blind man and that Jesus stopped, and that Jesus got involved in healing the man. But the healing part of the story is almost an aside in this story, if you notice, right? That's why I wanted to read all, all 41 verses, because the healing takes a couple of verses. The rest of the story is really about blindness and sight, spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. But the good news is that Jesus saw the man on the side of the road, and that is always good news. To be noticed by Jesus is really good news, right? And on this day, it happened for this man. But then the story goes downhill from there. The disciples were all over it. They saw the man too. And they saw this man's misfortune. And you know what they did? They used his misfortune in an opportunistic way. They used it as a teaching moment with Jesus. They used it as a way of objectifying this man, putting him under the microscope so that they could satisfy their own intellectual and theological curiosity. They asked a theological, philosophical question. Who sinned? this man, or his parents. They addressed Jesus as their teacher, so clearly they were in their heads. They were in a teaching mode. They had no sense of this person as a real human being. There was no love. There was no compassion. There was no concern for this man and what it might have been like to have been blind all your life. And maybe it's because they were uncomfortable. Maybe they were not able to interact and engage with that kind of a desperate human situation. But whatever it was, they turned him into a specimen. They put him under their spiritual magnifying glass. They distanced themselves from the raw humanity of his situation by asking a very bad question. And it was the blame question, isn't it? Who sinned? So on top of the fact that this man had to go through life blind, the disciples load even more weight on this poor man by asking who was at fault. Did he do something wrong or was it his parents' And in so doing, they distanced themselves from their own calling and responsibility in the moment. The calling of a Christian person, like what Dan said about the fact that we're not so much concerned about beautiful parking lots and stained glass windows. The question is, are we com- becoming more loving people? And here these disciples who had been walking so closely with Jesus, found no love in their hearts on this day. They just wanted to have a theological conversation. And their question was, embedded with their own cultural and theological biases and assumptions and those assumptions were built right into the question and it was the assumption in this culture that anything that went wrong has to be somebody's fault this was a culture you know that was pre a lot of what we know today and in order to describe and to explain things that were unexplainable They would try to make a cause-and-effect relationship between things that weren't necessarily related, but at least help them to understand. That was the culture. And this kind of thinking came out of that kind of a cultural situation. And they were superstitious. And so this question, who was to blame, actually contained a cultural bias in it. It contained the bias that had to do with this superstitious way of believing that there had to be sin in order for something bad to happen on the earth. And let me tell you that our own questions that have our own biases in them where we think we already know the answer or where the answer is very, very limited, these kinds of questions are never fruitful. They're never fruitful because the possibilities are so narrow. The disciples' question was a very narrowly framed question. Who sinned, this man or his parents? There were only two possibilities in this particular question. And that's what happens sometimes when we frame our questions this way and we're stuck there unless Jesus comes in and turns it on its ear, which he quickly does in this story. Jesus says, in effect, to the disciples, you are asking the wrong question. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This man has been born blind in order that the works of God can be revealed in and through his life. And what Jesus does here is he comes and he just blows up the old question and he offers really a new question. And the question is this, what is the work of God in this situation and how can we get on board with it? And that is so far from what the disciples were thinking, right? And it's sobering, very sobering to think that the people that were closest to Jesus were that far off in terms of what was really going on in this situation. And that question, what is God doing here and how can I get on board with it, that is a much better question. Rather than being a question that narrows the possibilities down to two very negative possibilities, Jesus' question actually throws the door open for the Spirit of God to come through and to do something brand new. Actually throws the door open for, in this case, healing. Yes, there is evil in the world. Yes, there is sin. Yes, there is tragedy. But... In the face of all that, the question is still, what is God going to do in the midst of it? No matter how bad it is, the question still is, what is God going to do in the midst of it? And that question opens up amazing possibilities for healing and for love. And so the first thing we begin to learn in this story is that the work of God in any situation leads us to always care about concrete expressions of love for other people rather than theoretical conversations about theology. It's kind of a hard truth, but that's one of the ways that we can look for the will of God is to know that the will of God, the work of God, is always going to lead us towards concretely loving the people that are right in front of us rather than leading us into some sort of a theological conversation. So that's the first category of people. That was the disciples, and their problem, their obstacle to seeing was that they were asking the wrong question. The second group of people in the story are the neighbors, And these are the people who had seen this blind man every day. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the people who had seen this man were people who had been around when he was born. Maybe they were even friends of his parents. Maybe they were even those people who, when this baby was born blind, they grieved with these parents that their son had been born with this kind of a challenge and with this kind of a deformity, with this kind of a limitation And so they had been with this situation for a long time, and they had created a pretty strong paradigm, a way of thinking about it, and they were stuck in their paradigms. And they were so stuck in their paradigms that they couldn't see anything that didn't fit what they already thought they knew. So in this case, it did not fit their paradigm to see a blind man who was now able to see. That kind of healing did not fit into anything they had ever experienced before, and so they couldn't even take it in. Their cognitive filters, the filters that were built on what it is that they thought they already knew, actually filtered God out. This is a very, very sobering idea. In fact, there's much research going on about the brain right now and the fact that our thinking patterns are actually hardwired into our brains. It's a physiological phenomenon that we have these neural pathways that are created by our thoughts and the neuronapsis and all that. I don't even know it all. I'm sure there's people here who know more than I do about it. But what I do know is that the way we think and particularly the ways that we've learned to think all of our lives actually create neural networks in the brain, ruts and grooves in the brain and it's very natural and most natural for our thoughts to keep just traveling the neural pathways that we already have set in our brains and that's what's happening to these people they had thought in a particular way about this man for so long that their thoughts just ran down that one track and they couldn't see anything else And how frightening it is for us to think that spiritual people that we think ourselves to be, maybe we have neural networks in our brains that really can't think another way unless we become very determined about it, and unless we embrace a new way of seeing and thinking and practicing that actually changes the structures of our brain. So these people, in order to um keep from being disoriented by facts that didn't fit their their uh, existing paradigms what they did was they tried to talk themselves out of it they tried to say well maybe this man isn't the man we've seen every day well what are the chances of that they've seen him every day but now they're just trying to talk themselves out of something that doesn't fit into their paradigm and even though the man himself was standing right there it was almost like he was invisible right he's going hey 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 over here it's me it is me i was healed but the, the uh, neighbors just can't take it in. And so I think this category of people makes me wonder, and perhaps it makes you wonder, what am I missing? What am I missing? Because I have a set of cognitive filters and paradigms in place that are so strong and so deeply embedded in me that I can't, couldn't hear a new thing if it was Jesus himself saying it right here in front of me. That's kind of a disturbing possibility, and yet that's what's going on here. The next group of people are the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are the most faithful, committed followers of God of this day. They are not clergy. They are the lay people, but the most spiritual lay people, and they are trying to uphold and to restore a deeper piety and holiness in Israel, but they're trying to do it in a particular way. They're trying to do it through a very meticulous observance of the law, and of course, um, the culmination of the law for the Israelite community was the keeping of the Sabbath, And these were by-the-book people. They had only one concern that day, and that was the preservation of their religious system the way that they understood it. And for them, it was all wrapped up in the Sabbath. And the religious system gave them an easy and a straightforward way of judging themselves and judging others. How nice for them. They were determined to be right. And someone has said that it is hard to be right and not hurt anyone with it. Isn't that true? It's hard to be right and not hurt anyone with it. And for the Pharisees, th- this system, this particular religious system, actually gave them a place. It kept them a place to feel like they were in control. It gave them a place where they knew who they were. It gave them a place where they could be in control of other people, where they could judge and evaluate people from the place that they were sitting outside the whole you know, thing of it. And you think about the fact that these Pharisees, not one of them, jumped up and gave this man a high five on that day and said, this is so exciting for you. What is it like to see now after a lifetime of being blind? There's no evidence in this story that one of those religious leaders, one of those very pious people, actually stood up and congratulated this man and celebrated with him for the goodness of God in his life. They were unable because... They only cared about preserving their religious system and the things within that system that were the litmus test for whether or not someone was truly spiritual. It's almost like they were thinking on that day, what will we do if people start running around loving each other on the Sabbath? They're going to ruin everything we're trying to do around here. You know, I mean, you can, you can see just the disconnect and the dissonance between the fact that this great thing had happened and the religious leaders couldn't embrace it. So that's the Pharisees, and sometimes I think we need to wonder, what is it that we're trying to preserve? Is there a place or some way of thinking or some way of standing outside the human experience and the human condition that I'm trying to preserve by refusing to engage with the works of God in a particular moment? And then the last category of persons who are struggling to see and to make sense of God's work here in the story is the parents themselves. The Jews would not Even uh, finished their conversation until they had talked to the parents. And these poor parents were the common people. They were the defenseless poor. They were just trying to survive in a religious system that was oppressive and unforgiving and at times very exploitive. We know that from other places in the scriptures that the money changing in the temple, the reason that, that Jesus was so angry about the money changing was because it was exploiting the poor. It was exploiting the people that desperately needed what the temple had to offer. So we know that this religious system was exploitive, particularly of the poor. And so they called the parents. And we can only imagine how these poor individuals came quaking in their boots to talk to the Pharisees. I'm sure they had this feeling of, uh-oh, what have we done now? Because usually being called in by the, ph- the Pharisees wasn't going to be a positive thing. That was pretty clear. And so the Pharisees got them into the room and they asked them the question, is this your son? Is this the one that you say was born blind? And how then does he see? And the parents are in a slightly different category here because the parents had seen. The parents did know that their son had been born blind. They, they did know that this was the person who had been healed and they knew that he could now see. But because they were afraid, and the passage says because they were afraid of the religious system, they were very, very careful in their answers. They said, yes, he is our son. Yes, he was born blind. But how is it that he now sees? We cannot answer that on grounds that might incriminate us. What a tragedy. What a terrible tragedy. On a day that should have been one of the best days of their life, A day of great celebration, they were afraid. And if you think about yourselves as parents and you think about how much you care for your children and the grief when you see them struggling with limitations or pains or challenges in their lives and how you would lay down your life, how you would do anything to ease those pains, how you would do anything to heal their wounds, how you would do anything to make it right. And on this day, these parents had that experience of it being made right for their son. What a day it should have been. And instead, they were afraid. They were afraid to name what happened. They were afraid to celebrate. They were afraid to acknowledge the presence and the action of God in their lives because they were afraid that if they answered directly, they would be cast out, that they would be cast out of the community that gave them a way to worship, a community that gave them a way to sacrifice and to receive absolution for their sins. If they were expelled from the community, they would be outside of what they understood to be the spiritual community of their time with no way to come directly to God because, um, you know, the presence of God was mediated through that religious system in that day. And the, the, the Pharisees had really set up a trap for these poor people on this day. They acted like they were asking a real question, and maybe they even believed it in their own hearts. Maybe they thought they were open, but we know that they weren't because the Scriptures tell us that they had already decided what the truth was. They had already decided who Jesus was and who he wasn't. And they had already agreed that anyone who believed in Jesus as the Messiah would be cast out. So they were really setting these parents up. They were backing them into the wall, and it was a very hard place to be. And this is how how paradigms function. On the one hand, they help us to make sense out of the world. But on the other hand, they have a a tendency to keep out any new information. And in fact, they have a tendency to keep out God himself. And so the parents didn't answer directly on that day, and they didn't have the chance to celebrate. And what about the man himself? Well, this is the beautiful part of the story, because in the midst of all the manipulations and the posturing and maneuvering and theological arguments and all the wrong questions, the blind man was staying true to a spiritual journey. He was staying true to the journey from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. His journey is unfolding underneath everything else that's going on. And you can read it. You can see it. In verse 11, he calls Jesus just a man. He was a man who healed me. Verse 17, he calls Jesus a prophet. Verse 33, he says, this is a man who has clearly come from God. Verse 35, he is the son of man, which is moving towards some sense that this is someone who is very special, someone who has come from God. And then verse 38, Lord, I believe. Statement of full faith. So this man, even while everybody else is all distracted by everything else they're stuck in, this man is staying true to the journey, and he is receiving spiritual sight. And the sad thing about this story is that because the religious leaders are on a very different journey, the blind man's journey gets him thrown out of the spiritual community. You could look at this passage and you could say there's two journeys going on. There is the blind man's journey towards sight, and there is the Pharisee's journey towards deepening spiritual darkness. They're on two different paths. They're on two different journeys, and they miss each other. And the blind man is not willing to be derailed from his journey, so he keeps holding to his story. And they call him a second time, and they're trying to bully him and manipulate him into giving the answer that they want to hear. Give glory to God. Tell us that this man is a sinner. All you have to do is tell us the answer we want, and we'll let you off the hook. And the blind man is smart enough not to even get drawn in, and he stands on the one thing he knows, and he refuses to get pushed off center, and he says, I don't care about that. I don't know whether he's a sinner. I have no idea. The one thing I do know is that once I was blind, and now I see. And of course, this infuriates the Pharisees, and they revile him, which means to make him a revolting person, and they seek to annihilate him from a character standpoint. They accuse him of being um, devoted to a sinner and being a sinner himself, entirely born in sin, as though they were not entirely born in sin. And the man responds with logic that is so clear and so compelling and so inarguable that all they can do is drive him out. And we don't even have time to go into that little passage, but his arguments are unbelievably clear, and there's no way to argue with them. And so now the Pharisees are stuck, and all they can do is just drive him out of their company. And so the blind man has had a very mixed kind of a day, hasn't he? (laughs) He has received his sight, but he has been driven out. And I want to ask you today, and we'll come back to the blind man in a minute, but I want to ask you now, Have you found yourself in this story yet? Are you brave enough to say, yes, this is me? Yes, I am like one of those disciples who asked the wrong question and who keeps getting caught up in theological debates in such a way that I miss the work of God right here, right now, right in front of me. Am I like the neighbors who were so stuck in their own paradigm that they couldn't see anything new? They couldn't see anything beyond what they were already convinced of? Am I like the Pharisee? Am I a defender of the system? Am I comfortable with the system as it is and comfortable with my place in the system so that that system has become more important to me than doing the will of God and knowing what the will of God is and getting on board with the will of God as it's unfolding in a given moment? Have I become like that? Or am I like the parents where something new is unfolding in my life, that the action of God is real, and I know it, but nobody talks about it like that, you know, and I don't know how to talk about it in a way that makes any kind of sense at all, and I'm afraid that if I tell people what God's doing in my life, they might reject me. It might get really uncomfortable, and so I'm just going to hide that in my heart. I'm not going to name what God's doing in my life because I don't know if it could be accepted with the people around me. And maybe you're the blind man, too. Maybe you know that you're everything in this story. Maybe you know that you are the blind man longing to see. But within you, there is a disciple and a neighbor and a parent and a Pharisee. All of those voices, all of those obstacles are within you. What journey are you on today? Richard Rohr says that a good journey begins with knowing where you are and being willing to go someplace else. And so today, you know what, it's enough just to notice If you could be brave enough today just to even notice where you are in this story and to invite God to start dealing with you there, that would be a very rich thing. And maybe you could drop down a little bit deeper and you could drop down to that place where you are like the blind man and you're longing to see. You know that the work of God is going on all around you. You're just not attuned to it and you want to be. Isn't it one of the deepest longings of the Christian heart to want to know the will of God and to be on board with it? To know that you are in the flow of something that's bigger and larger than yourself. That you can say, oh, there, over there, there's the will of God unfolding. I'm going to go go jump in over there because that's where the will of God is going on. And so maybe as we touch our longing today to know the works of God, to recognize them as they are unfolding, and to get on board with them, we could just notice these obstacles and how we might get beyond them. First of all, we could start to ask the right question. We could start to ask the healing question rather than the blame question. We could start with loving a real person in space and time rather than moving towards a theological argument. We could start with asking the right question. What is God up to here, and how can I join God in it? We could ask God to help us to see our own paradigms for what they are. We could ask God to help us see how limited they are. We could ask God, where are you bigger and more and outside of my way of thinking and constructing my world? And this is a brave question, but if we're not willing to ask this question, God, where are you bigger and more and outside of my thinking and my constructs? If we're not willing to ask that question, then what are we left with? Friends, we're left with a God that is no bigger than our own small mind. We're left with the God of our own small minds. And I don't want that God. He's not worthy of my allegiance. I want a God who's bigger and more and outside of what my mind can even think. Ask God to help you. Where are your paradigms and where is God bigger and more and outside of it so that you can start to expand your sense of who God is? As we look at the Pharisees, we might ask ourselves, what am I trying to protect in my life? What am I afraid to lose if I were to really see and to name what God's doing in my life? Would it require some choices that I'm not willing to make? But I'm here to tell you that if you know the works of God in your own life and there's an invitation for you, you have nothing to lose except your false self. You have nothing to lose except your false self-attachments. And you have everything to gain. You have the ability, the opportunity to be in the middle of the works of God in your life. You have everything to gain and nothing to lose that's of real value. If you're willing to ask God, what am I trying to protect and how can I let go in order to recognize your work and join you in it? And then as we think about the parents, we might ask ourselves the question, is there any place where I am being called upon to decide to know what I know and to stand there regardless of the risk? It's easier to belong to a group than to belong to God. It's easier to try to fit in with a group's beliefs than to know what you know. And much of our religious tradition does not help us to know what we know They set up a system of belief and then we're supposed to believe it whether we've experienced it or not. This story is a great reversal. In this story, the man has the experience of the healing presence of Christ and on the basis of that, he believes. But in the beginning, all he can do is just stand on what he knows. Once I was blind and now I see. Is there any way in which God might be calling you to know what you know, to claim it and to name it and to stand there regardless of the risks to your life? Because you know what? The man lost his place. The blind man lost his place in the spiritual community on that day. But you know what else? You know because you just heard the story. He found Jesus. And Jesus found him. And that is powerful, friends, to me, that not only did Jesus notice the blind man at the beginning of the story, but Jesus cared about what happened to him later in the story. And when he heard that the man had been cast out, he goes to find him so that he can give him the real perspective on the day. And you know what? You get to a point in your own life where when you have experienced a true healing, when you have experienced something that is outside your paradigms, you might find yourself on the outside for a little while. But being on the outside can be a place of encounter. And Jesus has something to say to us in this place. He says, Only those who admit their blindness can grow. Those who stubbornly refuse to admit their partial sight are destined to blindness. In fact, the most dangerous people in the world are the people that they think that they see. The most dangerous people in the world, he says, are the people who think they see. And the spiritual path is this path. It's the path to crying out to God. It's the path to being seen by Jesus it's the path of having something radically different take place in our lives, and it is the willingness to say, I don't know what you guys are fighting about, but I know what I know. This has happened to me, and this is where I stand. And when we do that, Jesus finds us in powerful ways. And you know what else? There are communities of people who are healed at that level too, and you find your place again. You, when you're truthful about your story, you find other people who are experiencing Jesus in the same radical ways, and you share your stories together, and you find out that you're not on the outside after all that you are very much inside the community of those who are encountering Jesus in life-healing ways. So I ask you today, if you would, to be courageous, to be brave with the story, to be willing to ask yourself the question, where am I in the story? And Jesus, would you meet me here? Would you meet me in my place in the story? Would you help me to move beyond my own obstacles to seeing Would you help me to move beyond my own blindness to real seeing? Would you help me to press through the obstacles to that place where what needs to be done in my life, you're able to do? And so at the end of this part of the service, I'm going to pray the prayer that I prayed at the beginning of the sermon. I'm going to pray it again because I think you might hear the prayer differently this time. And so I encourage you to open your heart to God in the prayer you're taking notes, set it aside. If your Bible's open, you can close it. With your whole body and soul, with your breathing, with your very life, see if this prayer doesn't fit for you in some new way. Heal our inner sight, O God, that we may know the difference between good and evil. Open our eyes, O God, that we may see what is true and what is false. Restore to us wisdom that we may be well in our souls. Restore to us wisdom that we and our world may be well. Amen.